Welcome everybody to the 18th episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. This is a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent and perhaps even hobbyists. My name is Susanna and I'm here with my co-host Jerome. Hi. Today we're going to have the very first episode of our Invited Scientist series. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Dave Speyer. So first, we should of course tell you guys why we're inviting Dr. Dave Spire as the very first scientist in this um, Invited Scientist series. Well, it only made sense to invite Dave, to be honest. Um, first of all, he's a really interesting scientist and he has um, uh, experience in topics like molecular evolution, mitochondrial research. Uh, super interesting. He also has a really great publication list with really high scoring papers. But in the publication list, there are also some really, really fun ones. Such as impact factor reads and real values, and on the likelihood of life originating, which... Spoilers. <laughs> but also things like zombie ideas about early symbiosis and the sting of rejection, and things like even the guardian needs a guardian. Yes. And all in all, what he writes is just always so much fun. And now Jaron has been uh, put in the same office as Dave for the past um, year or so because we had to spread out a little bit more because of Corona. So uh, Dave had to share his one solo office with Jaron and they had such interesting conversations. And I don't think Dave knows this, but uh, he was one of um, the inspiration sources for even starting this podcast. Yeah, exactly that. Uh... I remember you walking into the office while me and Dave were talking about everything from uh, running a marathon, because he's also done that, because of course he does, uh, he's done everything, to, uh, yeah, impact factors, and again, mitochondria, as that will be a big theme in the episode, I guess, as well. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, just, just all those conversations about all different topics of science and also Dave's enthusiasm about seriously every scientific <laughs> topic out there um, really made us think about starting this podcast and was a big inspiration source for that. So it only made sense, of course, to invite Dave first. So um, let's get started with this episode. Welcome, Dave. Uh, hi, and the doctor I really like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so professional. It does, huh? Well, you probably worked hard for it too, so... Uh. Yeah, PhD period. Uh, in the end, it's all worth it, but during it sometimes can be quite a struggle. But mm -hmm. that's what your whole podcast is about. <laughs> yes, so, uh, exactly. Yeah. So I'm the perfect illustration of what happens. Uh, you lose all your hair, for instance. Oh, no, that's not... Uh, that's that's optimal. You could say that sometimes happens. That's during, during the PhD already? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I, uh, oh, okay. It started out then. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I should mention that I didn't do my PhD at the normal age that most people do it. I got my PhD when I was over 40. So oh. now you understand why the boldness is not such a great surprise. Okay, well, how did that work then? I did other studies before. So I studied philosophy and I studied psychology. I was a conscientious objector. And then I suddenly noticed that, hey, but real science is <laughs> much more exciting than talking about it on a philosophical level. I started to get interested in neurobiology and in evolution. Okay. And I still had the chance to uh, study biochemistry and do a PhD. And then, which is quite incredible, I must admit, I even got a permanent job in academia. 
Yeah. Which is weird at my <laughs> age. I, uh, at the age I had then, which was, uh, uh, yeah, I, I competed out some much better people. <laughs> well, good for you. <laughs> yeah, for instance, I, I think so too. And I hope my students think so too. Yeah, yeah. So that's the background. And now you are our residence mitochondrial expert. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated about mitochondria and eukaryotic evolution. That's uh, I love to talk about that, but that's not what we're going to talk about today. Although it will pop up, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I can't speak for a few minutes without referring to mitochondria. It's, no. It's, it's a disease. Tell me about it. I know. <laughs> uh, you hear Jaron saying, tell me about it. I can explain something else. Why am I invited? Because Jaron is one of the few people that can't get away from my uh, lecturing <laughs> because he was dropped into the room that I occupied Previously. Into no. your office. Yeah. Poor guy. I, I lock Aww. the door and I begin. So, <laughs> so that's the background. Okay. Well, um, you got to choose your own uh, topic uh, for today. Yeah. And it's about uh, a question you hear often on TV. And, and most people are fascinated uh, by it. And they ask whether there is other intelligent life in the universe. Is there, and what can we say about it? Intelligence. That's the first thing that uh, you could say implies that we have intelligent life on Earth. Now, I'm not going to make all kinds of jokes about certain politicians, <laughs> right-wing politicians in the United States, etc. But let's say that, yes, indeed, we have intelligent life on Earth. Is it then also, could you say something without just uh, uh, philosophizing, but based on numbers, based on calculations, uh, something realistic about whether intelligent life is present in the universe. And you start out with the, 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 the more encompassing question, uh, is there life in the universe? Eh? Mm -hmm. First you have to have life and that then develops intelligence. And that's something uh, we can say something about. It's not just uh, uh, shooting the breeze, as uh, the English would say. Yeah, there is something uh, fundamental about this whole question. Uh, shall I go on? And, and yeah. yeah, okay. So um, not so long ago, I was reminded of this when there was a, a TV show that I didn't uh, find specifically enticing, but one of the characters one of the characters, yeah, this is the coffee machine, yeah, by the way, the on, in the background. I'll, I'll just, it, it'll stop doing this <laughs> if it knows what's good for it. So, uh, okay, so, um, and one of the characters in this, uh, this episode um, starts talking about intelligent life in the universe. And he says, yeah, we have a formula for this, the Drake equation. Now, if you know something about the Drake equation, you know that that's a really strange way of um, saying, yes, we can calculate. Because what the Drake equation actually does is give you all the things that you have to take into account before you get life and then intelligent life. So what you do, for instance, is you could calculate how many planets are there. Eh? Mm -hmm. Does every star have planets revolving? And not just any planet, probably need a planet like Earth, so not um, a gas giant like uh, Saturn or Jupiter. You really, you see that I mentioned that it would stop? 
it did. <laughs> so maybe we even have intelligent life in this room that's not human. But um, so you have a kind of calculation with a lot of fractions in there. So, so many of, uh, there are so many stars and the stars, there are so many with planets and there are so many with Earth-like planets. Uh, and on Earth-like planets, the chance that you will develop life is such a fraction and then et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But you see already what the big problem is here. You can make up this nice calculation, this formula. But what, do we really know something about what the chance is, for instance, if you have an Earth-like planet, that life will evolve? So um, you could say that the Drake equation tells you uh, an enormous amount of um, things you should know before you can answer mm -hmm. whether we have intelligent life in the universe. And the interesting thing is that um, the ones that biologists are, of course, interested in, that first of all, if you have an Earth-like planet, how big is the chance that you indeed evolve life? So let's do that one first. Now, there's rather a discrepancy. Most biologists would say, well, I think the chances are pretty good. Um, first of all, there's one argument that you can make. Now, we have a very tiny uh, population. We only know of one, that's the one we're on. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that isn't a big basis for good inductive reasoning. Wouldn't and his you one agree? doesn't work. No. And his one doesn't work. We have a scientist, <laughs> yes, I agree. But it's not completely without um, basis for making a calculation. And one of the things you could do, I should mention that now I leave uh, the ground where all scientists agree, and I'm um, talking about what I think. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a, a dangerous proviso I have to make. I'm talking from uh, the standpoint that I think uh, is the best way of dealing with uh, the chances we have. Mm -hmm. And I, there are people who totally disagree because of thermodynamics. They say it's a really tiny chance that uh, life just uh, develops because, you know, the law of thermodynamics, you get smaller constituents. Eh? Um, complexity doesn't arise spontaneously. Mm -hmm. You know all these uh, difficulties. But I have a few arguments that I would like to make to say that probably Earth-like planets have a good chance of developing life. And with life, I just mean a replicating system that's able to evolve because of tiny mistakes it makes and that sometimes uh, improve chances of survival and you get better replication, whatever the molecules involve. So why do I think that you can make some um, arguments starting with the knowledge we only have about Earth. Mm -hmm. now, we know that Earth, well, um, and planetary formation over here at our local home, that's about 4.4 billion years ago, 4.3, that's it. And in the beginning, it was really with an enormous amount of impacts, high temperatures, not compatible with any stability let alone with a stable uh, living environment. Now, things start to cool down, and then most people would say at about 3.9, 3.8 billion years ago, um, circumstances are such that if you evolve life, it could be 
stably allowed to stay. There are not so many things that go wrong anymore, not so many impacts, temperatures drop, blah, blah, blah. And lo and behold, when did life start out? If we try to go back in time, and we can do that biologically, you know, with a molecular clock and with other kinds of things, most people, and now I, I think I'm, I'm talking about 99% of evolutionary biologists would say, well, 3.8 billion years ago, yeah, you have uh, Luca, the last universal common ancestor. Okay. And that's either uh, something that was uh, mixed uh, archaeon and bacterium, or we have two independent lines that gave rise to the archaea and the bacteria. So prokaryotes. 3.8 billion years ago. And we just said, hey, that's about the time when it became stable. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it didn't take an enormous amount of time to get these cellular structures to work. And these are pretty complicated. Now, that gives me the idea, if that happened so quickly after that could have been stabilized, probably it's less hard than you would think to get life to go. Now, what are the extra arguments you could make? This is just talking about the speed with which it occurs, and this is nothing about, for instance, the molecules involved. Now, you... Probably have heard about the Stanley Miller uh, experiments uh, that if you uh, take um, the reductive uh, atmosphere that he thought was uh, available on planet Earth at that moment in time uh, with lightning as a source of energy, etc., etc., you see that certain amino acids are formed. Now, the interesting thing is that um, we now know that that probably wasn't a situation that gave rise to uh, the first uh, self-replicating systems, whether these are cellular or not. Um, I'm not going into. Um, But the interesting thing is that every time uh, we think, well, the chance of getting these kind of complicated molecules spontaneously, there is a breakthrough. And in 2019, I wrote an editorial on the likelihood of life originating, and that had to do with a brilliant article in Nature by Muchowska et al. And what these people found was that a few central intermediates, you just start out with pyruvate and glyoxylate, you put in some ferrous ions, so that's the Fe2+, Mm. in warm water, and that's it and you start with a lot, then spontaneously, I think nine out of uh, 12 of the TCA uh, intermediates, a very important cycle that that we uh, really need for uh, practically all prokaryotic and eukaryotic structures. In the mitochondrium, by the way. I mentioned that I Mm -hmm. would mention mitochondria. I was expecting them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there there they go. And if you put in a source of um, for instance, amino groups uh, that that helps quite quickly to get precursors and even for real amino acids. So you use hydroxy uh, hydroxyl amine, which is the most simple form of putting uh, amine in. You need, by the way, then metallic iron also. But these are things that are not too complicated. Mm. Now, I'm not going into further details. Another important thing is that. Uh, especially when you take into account border areas. Let's say you have lipids 
and you get micelle formation, then you can concentrate certain molecules in this lipid layer. And you can uh, also concentrate on the inside. So especially where you have border areas, and we, we know that, for instance, uh, thermal vents, uh, not the, the black smokers, but the, the, the ones that have not these enormously high temperatures, these are probably the spots where life arose. And these are spots where you have thermodynamic gradients that give you, uh, eight, you could say, not ATP yet, but, but sources of energy. You have these uh, mixes where, indeed, uh, uh, ferrous ions and, and uh, certain uh, carbon-containing simple molecules are around. And you see slowly but steadily, these are the contours of things we find in prokaryotes. So I think, yeah, probably that was not such a big deal. By the way, you should also see that um, the sun wasn't involved yet. Eh? This is at the bottom of, for instance, um, uh, the ocean, or mm -hmm. there could be other uh, areas where certain um, uh, frontiers meet, and there interesting things can happen. And then afterwards, of course, you get the situation that... Uh, for instance, fixation of carbon using the energy of the sun comes in, and it mm. becomes all the all the more exciting. Bit, of course, you get cyanobacteria, and these become chloroplasts and eukaryotes, etc. Et so, would you agree? I'm now stopping with this uh, <laughs> this soliloquy and asking you: Would you agree with me that probably, if you have an Earth-like planet, that it's not so difficult to get a self-replicating system, and that's what we mean with life. The details could differ, of mm. course, somewhat. Yes. What but do could, you think? But could you have, in your in your the scenario that you just sketched now, would you, would the thermal vents be absolutely necessary, or can you substitute that for something else? Um, because in, in most cases, these kind of thermal vents would be there because the 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 planets um, would. Uh, capture the, the planets on the inside, eh? so mm. not the gas giant, uh, giants, uh, would capture a lot of radioactive material on the inside, and that would give rise to all these kind of tectonic plate-like uh, aspects. That would give rise to fans. So probably these kind of planets would have fans anyway. But it's a really interesting point, because yeah, we don't know what kind of um, energy gradient could allow life to to slowly evolve you could imagine that there are still people that say no 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 it's not the vent that was the it's it's a pool eh? darwin uh, uh, theorized about a tiny pool uh, drying in and then getting water again so you get repetitive processes in which um, certain compounds are being concentrated eh? You know how that works if you evaporate all the time and then rain in again, etc. So there are many theories. At this moment, um, the defense theory is the most popular one. Mm. And that has to do with the fact uh, that um, you know, of course, about the proton motive force, uh, the other way of getting a lot of ATP instead of substrate level phosphorylation. By the way, this occurs in, there we go again, mitochondria. <laughs> and um, so there are a lot of people that think, yeah, that kind of gradient we see in a slightly altered form, uh, again, in uh, what happens at uh, 
the inner membrane of mitochondria with a proton motive force. And that could have been a sodium motive force in the beginning. There's not such a big difference in that. So most people now think that this was the starting point, but it ha doesn't have to be this. Mm. You, that, that, that idea, and there are alternative theories about uh, um, certain structures uh, that organize molecules on top of it. Interestingly enough, um, if you talk about the Miller uh, experiment, he did this in, in glass tubes, and somebody uh, recently in scientific reports had the brilliant idea of thinking, yeah, but maybe the silicate and the surface helps to make this a much more exciting experiment by giving rise to more uh, molecular ingredients that resemble what you need for life. Mm -hmm. So they did exactly the same experiments that Miller described, but then they coated the glass with Teflon. Okay. And, mm -hmm. and what do you expect? Well, you would expect no difference, but I think... No, actually, there's an enormous reduction in complexity. Well, enormous, quite a reduction in complexity. Certain hmm. um, uh, nice examples of molecules that you find in uh, metabolism uh, weren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you give back the, 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 the non-Teflon uh, glass, they appear. So that oh, glass surface has a catalytic... Uh, and that's... That's no big deal. Sand mm -hmm. can do this yeah. as well. Yeah. But you see that all these things come together in, in making life. Okay, shall we stop about life <laughs> and just say, okay, life on an Earth-like planet? Yes. Yeah, I can see it happening. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. You, okay, I've convinced. Dear <laughs> listener, I've convinced <laughs> two people already. Please say yes as well. Okay. So now we come back to uh, the question afterwards, and that's, Okay, so we have prokaryotic life. Now, don't knock prokaryotes. They have way more biochemical versatility than us eukaryotes. Uh, and they've been around for a very, very long time. So if we go on like this and we destroy all higher forms of life, of life prokaryotes and archaea will not be troubled in the least. Mm -hmm. Some of them, of course, eh, we have uh, certain bacteria and archaea that really need eukaryotes. But... The, the, the large majority probably would say, well, good riddance. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now we are going to talk about complicated life. And not, I'm not talking about brainy life yet, but just a more complex cell. Yeah. Um, most people would say... One uh, with mitochondria. One with <laughs> mitochondria. I, I, I think I'm, I'm going to make this into um, the church of mitochondria. <laughs> this is a new scientific church. With already three fanatical members. Oh, no, I don't <laughs> like fanaticism and churches. Stop. Okay. So, uh, one with mitochondria, indeed. And uh, the interesting thing is, if you compare eukaryotes to prokaryotes, they're way more complicated. Eh? They're mm -hmm. much bigger. They have internal structures that uh, prokaryotes can never uh, um, uh, reach. They have a much higher uh, efficiency in forming ATP have a nucleus, they have ER, they enormously complicated. Mm -hmm. Much more DNA, so that allows also tissue formation. You have uh, now the information to make uh, neurons and uh, hepatocytes, etc. But let's not start with multicellular organisms. Let's just look at unicellular eukaryotes, which, by the way, encompass 
the large majority of all diversity. At first we had this, uh, the, the first eukaryote came about. We talked about uh, Luca, now we are talking about Leica, eh, the last eukaryotic common ancestor. And, and that gave rise to quite a lot of unicellular uh, uh, lineages. And, and one of these lineages became uh, yeasts and metazoans, another one plants, etc. And um, you have to uh, reconstruct Leica. And the reconstruction of Leica tells us that this was already a very complicated cell. So it had meiotic sex, for instance, eh? with meiosis, a reduction, a recombination of two cell types. And, and that's a very complicated process. Mm -hmm. Nothing comes near in, in what, what prokaryotes do with Interesting to give a little bit of a plasmid, but it's not meiotic sex, which is a highly complicated process. And a lot of things we don't understand about it yet, why it evolved, <laughs> etc. But by the way, if you're interested, we could do a podcast about why <laughs> mitochondria are probably involved. There we go again, mitochondria. Okay, so um, we, we have this very complicated eukaryotic cell. Um, which had mitochondria, which had uh, meiotic sex, which probably already had peroxisomes, uh, an ER, really complicated cell. We know that this was a full-scale eukaryote. Uh, how that arose, there's an enormous amount of uh, uh, discussion about that. Um, uh, I have my favorite theories, but I won't bother you too much uh, on this occasion with that. Okay, but. What we do know is we can reconstruct again with molecular clocks and, and uh, uh, micropaleontological evidence, eh? so going for microfossils. Um, and practically everybody is now convinced, okay, there, you, you could be 200 million years off, but it's about 1.8 billion years ago. Okay. Hey. <laughs> so we have straight away, no problem whatsoever, prokaryotic life as soon as it is possible, but we have to wait another 2 billion years to get eukaryotes. What's going on? And by the way, that's a necessary precondition before you can make very complicated organisms that are capable of intelligence, I would say. So this is where people get divided. The biologists mostly say, okay, if we have Earth-like planets. Oh, by the way, I should mention, not everybody is convinced. I have a friend who knows an enormous about uh, early evolution, and he says, no, thermodynamic chances of, of ripping everything apart are so difficult to conquer. I'm not convinced yet. So it's not that all biologists say, the majority okay. seems mm -hmm. to think that you get life as soon as it's possible on an Earth-like planet. But now you see that this second step takes a long time. A long time. Now, there, there could be a reason that you absolutely need oxygen or you need heavy breathing, like the apparatus in the background is <laughs> now doing again. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in our AI tools. 
Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers. Just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. Also a repetitive uh, um, thing occurring here. That's, that's nice. But get, getting back to uh, the eukaryotic complexity. Um, so whether that was dependent on uh, the fact that first, the GOE, uh, the great oxygenation event, uh, had to occur. So we had cyanobacteria, mm -hmm. and they were able to use sunlight to fix um, uh, CO2 into glucose, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You can either do that without uh, splitting water, that's already feasible, but if you really want to do that efficiently, so you have photosystem one and photosystem two, if you want to do that efficiently, it's a good idea to split up water. And these cyanobacteria uh, found that trick and they said, well, that's uh, allowing an enormous amount of glucose and ATP and all the other stuff we need. And we'll get rid of uh, the rubbish, just as human beings are doing at the moment. <laughs> so you get, you could say the first great um, problem by uh, this enormous amount of a very toxic molecule, because oxygen is really reactive. Now, molecular oxygen is still really reactive, but it's also relatively stable. Huh? So it doesn't oxidize everything straight away. For that, you first have to activate it. So uh, you get more and more oxygen. Um, uh, the oxygen levels in the environment start to rise. And then we can see uh, by the precipitation of certain uh, iron components that first were uh, easily dissolved in water, that uh, the amount of oxygen reaches certain levels. And that goes on and on. Eh? There are fluctuations in the oxygen levels if you reconstruct what happened with Earth over time. So there's an enormous amount of oxygen that leads to quite a lot of problems for a lot of organisms that die off, and others have to evolve all kinds of antioxidant measures. Um, and there are people who say, uh, um, uh, mitochondria were taken up by another cell to take care of oxygen. Mm -hmm. uh, so as an antioxidant measure. I don't believe that because mitochondria themselves use oxygen. And that means that um, they are actually a source of dangerous species. So reactive oxygen species. Yeah. Most calculations are that 90% of ROS in your cell is formed in the mitochondria. 
So that's a dangerous thing, and the payoff has to be high. And it is, of course, mm-hmm. because you get an enormous amount of ATP and precursors for all kinds of biosynthetic reactions. So that sounds good. I would. Yes. So whether it was oxygen that first had to reach a certain level, or, which is also possible, or a combination of both, um, what is different with a eukaryotic cell that has taken up a mitochondrion? Now, we know also in the prokaryotic world that cells can, uh, for instance, nicely um, help each other. Eh? Sy- mm-hmm. Symbiosis, you mm-hmm. often find. Uh, um, one man's garbage is the other man's uh, favorite hobby, you could say. <laughs> and that also holds true for prokaryotes. So um, uh, one prokaryote has to get rid of something because they can't use it. They don't have the metabolic uh, engine for that, the genes, but the other one can, uh, but that one secretes, etc. Now that's easy to evolve and that happens quite a lot. But encapsulating another organism and really integrating it completely into a new organism, eh, that's much more difficult. Yeah. So, and that happened with the mitochondria. We know that. Uh, Leica had a mitochondria. The original uh, merger and acquisitions of... Precisely. So you could say, a lot of people nowadays say, yeah, but that's not such a big deal. And then they uh, talk about, uh, for instance, um, that quite a lot of eukaryotes were able to take up an an other eukaryote or a cyanobacterium. Mm -hmm. Uh, That didn't happen as often, but... but, uh, but what people forget is you have a eukaryote then. And a eukaryote has uh, phagocytosis, has already targeting of certain uh, nuclearly encoded uh, protein products to the correct organelle, etc. And then it becomes way easier. But the first time probably was an enormously difficult thing. And that didn't work out too often. No. And you could say... Maybe that's one of the reasons, too, why it took such an enormously long time before finally one worked. Yeah. Yeah? So that's some of the considerations uh, when you talk about... And if you need such a complicated cell with another cell inside, then chances of evolving something complicated, let alone something intelligent. There are people who say, yeah, that hurdle is much more difficult to take and, and that's why intelligent life in the universe isn't as abundant as people might think. Uh, by the way, I should still stress, I'm talking from my own uh, yeah, biases. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, I love this idea <laughs> that Leica really was different because it was not an acquisition. It was not a pre-eukaryote that took up um, a alpha proteobacterium-like organism uh, via phagocytosis and yay we have a pre-mitochondrial now there is a kind of merger going on mm-hmm. and both of them have uh, contributed to what we now call a eukaryote and and that's even more important um my favorite hobby horse and i'm not going to talk about it i'm just going to mention it is that if you get a alpha proteobacterium inside the cell that uses oxygen, you have an enormous advantage because mm-hmm. you have a 
battery, you could say, that could make an enormous amount of ATP. Yeah? If you use oxygen as the final electron except, there's such a thermodynamic driving force. That's why mitochondria in all the tissues that really need an enormous amount of energy, your heart, uh, fatty acid oxidation, and the respiratory chain and protons and ATP formation, that can only work with something like a mitochondrial. That's why, for instance, also your hepatocytes uh, use uh, mitochondria really intensively. But what is the price you pay? Mm -hmm. uh, we just mentioned that you have electrons in an electron yeah. transport chain and you have oxygen. That mm -hmm. could mean that you have um, preliminary reactions without nicely waiting for cytochrome C oxidase to do it correctly, and you get ROS formation. And there are certain specific circumstances in which ROS formation goes up. Now, that in itself would be detrimental to your mitochondrial DNA. And that could probably be one of the driving forces why you have such a tiny mitochondrial DNA and all the other genes are now safely tucked away behind the nuclear membrane inside the nucleus, uh, further protected by histones, etc. You see, ROS really mm -hmm. very important. So you have two uh, sides of this, 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 you could say two-edged sword. You get a shitload of ATP. You're very happy with that. But you get toxic, very reactive, uh, reactive oxygen species inside the cell. Eh? Yeah. Not on the outside, inside the cell. And I think that's really what makes this process so, so wonderful. You get all the energy and ATP you need. But that has to be, um, you could say, used for an enormous amount of antioxidant measures, etc. So quite a lot of the um, specific hallmarks of eukaryotic cells could probably be understood in the light of protecting yourself from ROS. And that's why I, for instance, think that meiotic sex evolved. It's a repair mechanism because you are really oxidizing your um, your genome, mm -hmm. All, not only your mitochondrial genome, but also that poor unprotected host at the beginning when uh, Leica was being formed. I did it again. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, yeah I'm so excited about these ideas. So, <laughs> um, maybe um, if we ever return to a podcast, we could do one about peroxisomes because these are also <laughs> nicely, you can understand them nicely by internal ROS formation from mitochondria. That has to do with beta oxidation, of course. Now, you have been uh, uh, patiently listening, although I saw some fatigue slowly <laughs> but steadily. No, but, no. but how long have I been going on about my favorite subjects now? Uh, 30 minutes. 30 minutes. So maybe we could do it like this. I, I, of course, hey, you are the people that know how a podcast works. Um, what do you think about you coming up with a few questions, for instance, or things where you say, yeah, that sounds interesting, but have you thought about this? Or... I do have a question, actually. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, I sort of wonder if life, intelligent life, um, has to evolve similarly to what it has on Earth. Like, do we, is, is it the mm -hmm. only way? Are mitochondria essential? <laughs> well, well yes, of mitochondria course. is, of course, already... Um, you, you could say that something... Uh, one of the things that mitochondria do is they form cristae. Eh? So you have mm -hmm. internal membranes 
that gives you an enormous amount of ATP, while if it's just one cell and the outer membrane of your cell has to be the protomotive force generating barrier, then it's just not big enough. And we, we, uh, our cristae are, are really, um, you could say, uh, stuffed to the full with respiratory chain complexes. And because you have this internal membrane, that gives you an enormous amount of ATP generating power. Yeah. So probably you need some internal um, cristae-like containing compartment. And the best way to get that is by engulfing or merging with another organism that uh, now becomes internal and then can just make um, internal membranes all the time. So it has to do with surface area. Yeah. But, but actually, I, I think you have a, a really brilliant question. Um, because um, we are we're really talking about life um, based on but how it know. is on yeah. Earth. Mm -hmm. And there are people that, especially science fiction writers, that speculate that you could have um, a life based on uh, gaseous interactions in, in, in Jupiter, on a gas <laughs> giant or something. What do we know? Huh? Yeah. So let's talk about that. What do you need for life? Are there things you can really be not certain, but somewhat certain about? Well, one of the things that most people agree on is it probably has to be carbon-based. Mm -hmm. um, because it's the only element that allows such an enormous amount of interactions with all the other elements and also with itself. And you've got uh, the normal single bond, you've got double bond, you've got triple bonds. Um, you get ring formation. You, yeah, you get a lot. You get a lot. Yeah. Hey, you see, some people are able to put this in a very concise <laughs> manner. You get a lot. That's it. That's Flex the way. Flexible that's, molecule. That's yes. the way. So the versatility that carbon, carbon gives you leads most people to think, okay, it should be carbon-based. Mm -hmm. And if it's carbon-based, then probably gaseous giants won't work. So you need Earth-like planets and then probably something... Uh, the interesting thing is that, uh, that these experiments by uh, Muchowska et al. that I started out with, that were published in Nature in 2019, show that, that things that you find in all living organisms as central, the glyoxylate cycle and the TCA cycle, if you begin with pyruvate, which is not part of the TCA cycle, but you know pyruvate mm -hmm. dehydrogenase gives you acetyl-CoA and that goes into the TCA cycle. Mm -hmm so pyruvate and glyoxylate and just a little bit of iron and you get all these intermediates so if i had to bet i would think that these would play a role in all life in the universe but hey that's already mm -hmm. going a little bit far but i i think you're you're spot on we don't know and oh. um well, I mean, that it took so long to even get to that second step also yeah. means mm. that there are not a lot of other options, maybe. Well, that, that's also probably true. Um, the interesting thing is that um, I'm not alone in thinking nowadays that intelligent life is not so easy to get. Mm -hmm. um, I talked to J. Ronald already a little bit about <laughs> Brian Cox, mm. and he's this, this uh, English physicist uh, that um, presents an enormous amount of BBC programs. Um, I always think every scientific program on the BBC is, of course, a good idea. But he, he, he goes into this whole mode of 
wonder, etc. And mm -hmm. that's it. The actual interesting thing is that you also explain why it's not only wonder. Wonder is the starting point, and then you start to understand. He, as a physicist, as a physicist, knows that better than than anybody. And um, but sometimes in the programs um, they don't underestimate the public, and they go they delve somewhat deeper. Uh, and he has an enormous amount of people that he reaches. So, um, but I always had a little bit mixed feelings until I read one of his books, uh, Forces of Nature, in which he so nicely describes what it is like to work in science. So, and this is what your podcast is. Mm -hmm. So, on the one hand, this uh, terrible frustration of, no, it wasn't the way I thought it was, or no, I can't even conclude anything because there was no negative control this time. Mm -hmm. Or, hey, this idea just cost me half a year of work and I could just as well have done nothing. Mm -hmm. That's one side. But there is also the other side that he describes so nicely. Then suddenly, at a certain moment in time, you see, hey, but this works. And that really is the pathway that's used here. Or, of course, in his case, with physical examples. Um, he, um, but he knows quite nicely how to put that feeling that, mm -hmm. that, uh, that you're blessed if you have the chance to do science, which we agree on, I yes. think. Um, so I would um, uh, urge the listeners to, for instance, uh, Forces of Nature by Brian Cox. Um, if you have ever seen him on BBC, give him another chance if it wasn't your cup of tea yet and, and buy that book. I really thought it was very nice. Um, but why am I talking about Brian Cox? Because not so long ago, and I made a note of it, I think a few months ago, um, two months ago, uh, in the run-up to uh, COP26, uh, the, the great uh, meeting in Glasgow to talk about climate change and all the difficulties we are encountering, um, he uh, talked to all the world leaders and he said, well, um, actually... Um, we could be the only intelligent life in the universe. So um, where people once thought, ah, it must be teeming with intelligent life, based on um, a rather uh, naive interpretation of the Drake equation that we started out with, mm -hmm. now more and more people are, and probably by considering certain biological aspects like the very late arrival of... Uh, uh, the eukaryotic cell. Oh, I should mention that there are still people, by the way, who don't agree with that. And based on no evidence whatsoever, I think, but they <laughs> think that prokaryotes and eukaryotes, it, it all came out of the primordial um, uh, starting material long ago at once. Uh, there are, there's no basis for that, but I should mention it. Not everybody agrees that it was 1.8 billion years ago, but Okay. Uh, I, I should say, well, people that know something about it. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. So he, he said uh, as well, well and whether that would uh, be an important argument to get people to be a little bit wiser about not endangering um, the uh, Homo sapiens as a species, I don't know. Uh, most people are... Um, already quite, you could say, activated by the chance that their children and grandchildren might not stand a chance. 
You don't need the extra idea of, yeah, but then all intelligent life of the universe. Yeah, scientists might think that that's an important aspect, but yeah. I don't think there's an enormous amount of extra convincing needed here. <laughs> but that, I, I, I saw that and I, I thought, hey, so more people are beginning to come around that actually you need quite a few um, quite um, unsuspected and unexpected uh, accidents before you get uh, intelligent life. But do you think it's so rare that, assuming that on most Earth-like planets there would be simple no, life, sort yeah. of, that it's so rare that even though you have that everywhere, it would not happen? Uh, I, I have no idea whatsoever. <laughs> I, I must admit that you could easily say, well, it's even more rare than you think, and Cox is right. In the visible universe, there's only one, and it's us. I don't actually like that so much. Every time that people thought there was something very special about this planet and, or the sun, or every time we uh, are confronted with the fact where it's just run of the mill. So possibly there could be uh, an enormous amount of intelligent life in the universe. By the way, this um, brings me back to the Drake equation again. And when Drake and others were calculating that, mm -hmm. I don't know whether Drake was already involved, but this was um, in about the 40s. And then the brilliant Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, um, uh, who was really rapid with calculations, etc., etc., was also asked uh, about this. And they were discussing this, and some people said, yeah, there must be an enormous amount of uh, intelligent life. And Enrico Fermi responded with um, a remark that's now referred to as the Fermi paradox. But it's not a paradox, it's more of a question. He said, oh yeah, where are they? Mm -hmm. So if you, hey, if you have intelligent life everywhere, why don't we get signals? Why don't we, hey, where are they? Now, um, if you're um, a conspiracy nut, uh, you <laughs> say that they have contacted, contacted us uh, a million times. Yes. I'm not. I, I don't think we ever encountered a, a clear signal yet. And then it becomes interesting. Mm. Uh, haven't we heard of them, uh, from them, I should say, because we're really the only ones? Or it's really enormously rare? There are even more interesting hypotheses. Some people say... No, you get intelligent life, but there's a bottleneck, and that's something which you take as a warning. If people or intelligent beings evolve from a Darwinian selection, they have certain aspects which don't allow them to stably make the transition into a very powerful technological species that is still um, able to suppress, for instance, warlike instincts, etc., etc. So there are people who say, well, no, they always destroy themselves at a certain level. Or there are people who say, no, they don't destroy themselves by war, but for instance, by species extinction and climate change, and they always do that. And then we're in a pretty exciting moment of history because mm -hmm. <laughs> then we're in the bottleneck at the moment. Yeah, yeah I was and actually it, about to ask you that. Yeah. Um, is it possible that we're just sort of the earliest versions of intelligent life and there are... You, just, you, uh, you, uh, you yeah. could imagine that if you uh, pass this bottleneck and that you could get way more intelligent mm. than we are. And one of the signs 
that they are really, really way more intelligent is that they don't contact us. So <laughs> maybe that's true. But now we're getting into philosophy, yeah? and it's um, and we and we tried to to be as rational and as scientific as possible about questions that we really can't be too sure about. Yeah. Let's let's be honest. But yeah, because I always yeah, I was always just considering we always sort of frame the question along of intelligent life contacting us, but what if we're in the lead and we need to contact an intelligent life? out there that's that's even more uh, interesting there are people um th this is a real discussion eh, between people uh, we we sent out for instance uh, voyager or pioneer I, I Tesla. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so so but but we really have um uh, i think it's the voyager with this plate mm -hmm. and beethoven's ninth on it and a mm -hmm. picture of a man and a woman etc etc and that has um, uh, already um, exited um, our uh, uh, own uh, planetary system eh? that's really going out there. Now, don't underestimate the enormous distances. Mm -hmm. that's, that's still negligible. Um, and we don't know how stable that, that stuff is. But there were people that said, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And let's say, for instance, that um, if we start... Uh, making too much noise over here and and that can be picked up uh, everywhere in the universe after of course a very long period of time because even at the speed of light these distances mm -hmm. are enormous but there are people who say no nah, you might think that um, uh, earth is uh, really abundant but let's suppose that planets that are um, able to sustain life intelligent life are really rare, then you might, for instance, uh, have awoken a, a species that said, hey, finally, we can uh, go no somewhere talker. else. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, you don't know what you invite. There's one thing why I'm not too upset about that, and that's that people always underestimate the distances. The distances yeah. are incredible. That's, of course, the, the big difficulty with things like... Um, uh, Star Trek and mm. Deep Space Nine, exciting, but um, they always have a way to um, uh, be faster than light. There yeah. isn't. And Usually so wormholes or something. Wormholes or something. And that's the only theoretical possibility. Kip Thorne wrote very nice mm. about that. But most people agree, no, it's not stable and it will never work. And then the speed of light is limiting and then distances. I wouldn't be too worried about a system that's 300 billion light years uh, apart with Earth. Don't you agree? No, mm. by the time they get here, we're already dead. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> at, at this rate, yeah. we'll speed up the process. <laughs> so, hey, we'll be ready for them when they do show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or we're ready when they do show mm. up, precisely. But uh, I'm, I'm taking this, this, this bottleneck that we're in rather seriously. I don't want to sound too depressed, but uh, mm. we should really change our habits rather quickly. Like, yeah is, is that it hey we're talking about ending civilization maybe we should end <laughs> the podcast <laughs> any other on questions such, on such a high note also <laughs> you know? oh on a high note people science is great it can be frustrating but if you have the possibility to do it do it well yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that's a high point that's <laughs> a very high okay. <laughs> good high okay. point yeah. okay well um if you have any questions, you can reach us on our website, thestrugglingscientist.com, or on our email address, thestrugglingscientist at hotmail.com. And 
Um, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to also follow us on all our uh, social accounts like Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Yes. Bye. Bye. Bye.